and two. Today we have Kristen Goodman with us, and she is going to talk all about secondary infertility, as well as her five unsuccessful IUIs, her diagnosis of endometriosis, adoption, fostering, failed adoptions, all the things. So we have a long story, a long journey that you've been through and kind of where you're at now. So thanks so much for being here, Kristen. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I saw that sigh as we were going, as we were going through the list of things. And before we hit record, you know, you were saying it's been a really long six years. So yeah, That's I guess crazy. start from there. Cause what is that? 2014, 2015? Yeah. So 2015, I guess. Yeah. It's been crazy. Um, you don't even realize how much time has gone by until I like sat down to like, think about everything that's happened. And then you're like, whoa, it's been like years, you know? Um, so yeah, I guess like it started back, I got married in 2013, um, knew from early on that like wanted to be a mom. That was like my number one thing. Um, I'm a teacher, love working with kids. So I always knew like, I want to be a mom. That was my goal. Like the reason I went into teaching was because of the schedule and how much time you get at home with kids. Um, and so from there, we were married for a couple of years, got pregnant with my son, um, very easy in 2015, um, right away, you know, just stopped taking birth control and boom, got pregnant. And I was like, this is great. This is how it's going to be, you know, like never had a second thought. And then, um, let's see, he was about one and a half and we decided to try again and got pregnant pretty easily again. And that was, I think we tried for probably two or three months, um, got pregnant then and, had a miscarriage at about eight weeks. And I was like, you know, all right, what's going on? Cause it was all so easy before that, but I'd had a few friends who had had miscarriages and ended up getting pregnant pretty soon after. So I was still like, you know, this is part of it. It happens to so many people. And so it was so sad and devastating and hard, but moved on. And then months went by, wasn't getting pregnant. Um, and so at that point, obviously I'd not been on birth control for a long time and I started getting very heavy periods, lots of pain. And I just kind of thought, well, maybe this is what periods are like after you have a baby. I had no idea. Um, because before my son, I had been on birth control and then, um, I started, I don't even really remember how I ran into the term endometriosis, but I didn't really know anyone with it. I'd never really heard of it before. I feel like I was probably just Googling like heavy periods yeah. and came across it. Um, and I was like, gosh, I feel like I have all of these symptoms. Um, but I didn't really have anybody to talk to about it. I mentioned it to my OB and she was kind of like, you know, I don't think so. Like, I think it'll be fine. You're probably, you're still really young. You're going to get pregnant. At this time I was 27, 28. Um, so she was like, let's just keep trying. Few months went by, nothing happened. So she was like, let's try some Clomid. So I did three months of Clomid. Um, and gosh, it's so hard to remember that. Long ago. I'm listening. Isn't it crazy? So I'm assuming they just did not treat quote unquote, treat the endo that you suspected. And they just said, let's try Clomid. Yes, exactly. Wow. Um, cause when I brought it up, I mean, she was a great a great OB. I loved her, but she was just kind of like, I don't think that's what it is. You know, I think you're, you're just used getting used to like having a period without being on birth control. And I think it's going to be okay. So she was like, let's do the Clomid. Um, did that still wasn't helping, didn't get pregnant. And then she was like, okay, I think I'll send you off to a specialist. So we were living in Charlotte at the time, went to a fertility clinic, had the whole workup done. Um, at this point, I guess it was like right about a year after the miscarriage. Um, and of course my husband was fine. All of his stuff was perfect, like shining star. And right. then, um, I, they couldn't really, you know, I was kind of just unexplained. They didn't really know what was going on. So everything looked okay. Um, and I don't even, I feel like so many people who've been on here have known like all of the statistics behind what they told them at the fertility clinic. I don't even remember like any of my numbers or how anything looked. I just know they were kind of like, we think you're okay. Well, and I think you're coming from a place of like, you knew you could get pregnant. You knew your body could sustain a pregnancy. So you're probably like not grasping of like, I, can I get, even get pregnant? So I'm sure it's right. a different mind space. Definitely, definitely different. Cause I, and I had some friends at the time who had never been pregnant and they were going and they were just so much more 
into it. And I guess that, that makes sense. Like to me, it was like, I know I can get pregnant. It's just like, there's some disconnect happening. Working right now. Yeah. And the doctor I was seeing there was very old. He was super sweet, but he was not very like up on anything new. And to me at that time, it felt like endometriosis was new. Like, and I felt like he was kind of like, I don't really, he was pretty honest. He was like, I don't really know much about it. It, I would be surprised if you had it. And I'm like, I feel like I have it. And Which is so frustrating because now, now that's like the second doctor that you've like brought this up to and they've kind of dismissed you. Yes, definitely. And even my husband was like, the doctors are telling you, you probably don't have it. And I'm like, but I really think I do. You know, you have like this intuition that like something uh-huh. is wrong. And I remember talking to friends and being like, I just feel like something is not right. And so they decided the only way to figure out if I definitely had endometriosis was to do the surgery. And so at that time, since they were all telling me they didn't think I had it, I was like, well, I don't want to do the surgery if you guys don't think I have it. Mm-hmm. So they were like, well, let's try IUI. We think IUI will work. So we get on board for IUI. Um, trying to remember, I think they gave me, what was it called? It was a shot um, that I had to do right before the IUIs. Like the trigger, I think it's like yes. an HCG trigger shot. Yeah. So I had to do that each time. Um, we ended up doing five IUIs with wow. a, what, two and a half year old, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. like I, I oh want to hear kind of how all this is too, with like raising a little toddler. Yeah, it was a lot. It's so crazy to think about. I was still, I was teaching at the time. And I remember, you know, having to go in every morning for like that week, right before I was getting ready to do the IUI to get the blood work done. And it was just intense. It yeah. was so intense. Um, And, you know, you get so hopeful every time you're like, this one's going to, this is going to be it. This one's going to work. And so month after month, nope, nope, nope. And um, finally, I I think it was about the fourth one. I was kind of like, I don't really want to do anymore. And he was recommending that we do six. That's so, and I guess it was what, 2018. So I guess a couple years, I mean- Cause they normally say three, three. Yeah. That's what I've always heard is three, six is yeah. a lot. Six is a lot. And they just kept saying, well, you know, you've been pregnant before. We know you can get pregnant. We feel like this is going to work. And I, like everything- changing it every month, like doing anything different. Can you like yeah. add a different, but it was just the same thing over and over again. It was the same exact thing. Oh my God. Over and over again. It's and so really expensive. I know. Oh. It was crazy. And I feel like I wish that I would have been, you know, more of an advocate for myself, but I just had no idea. You know, you just go in and you're like, whatever they say is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I wish I would have just researched some more because the more that I started to research, you know, I was like, if I have endometriosis, this is probably not going to work at this point. Like, so we got to the fourth one and they were like, do one more, just do one more. So we did one more, didn't work again. And at that point, I was like, I really want to figure out if I have endometriosis because I feel like all of this is for nothing. And at that point, they wanted us to move on to IVF. And I felt like, what are what are even my chances? Like, we're talking about a whole lot more money now, and we really don't even know what's going on. And so decided to do the surgery for endometriosis, um, went to a great, like, well-known surgeon. Um, went in for surgery, came out. She was like, you have stage four endometriosis. It's everywhere. Stage um, four? Stage four endometriosis. Oh, and were you like I was shocked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was shocked. And, um, you know, she was like, it's, it's everywhere. We think we got it all out, but, you know, I'm going to send all this back over to the fertility clinic. So your doctor can see, you know, where, it, where it all was. And at that point we go back in and they're like, yeah, you're, this is definitely going to affect your egg quality and everything else. And so then they, you know, they said at this point, I guess I was 30, 31. And they're like, you know, in a couple of months, your, your egg quality is going to be like a 40 year old. And so, and I'm like, so we just did all of these Yeah. Defeat after defeat. Did, did they, and I don't want to interrupt you, but did they say like endo could have been like, um, in like inflamed after the pregnancy or did they explain how you could get pregnant so easily the first time they did? So they said that, um, 
and I'm definitely not a doctor, so no one quote me on this, but <laughs> um, that the birth control kind of suppresses the endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And so I guess since I was about 18, I'd been on birth control and you know, I'd never had, I mean, I had very, very easy periods all along, like very little pain, very little bleeding. And then as soon as we decided to get pregnant with my son, I stopped taking it and got pregnant immediately. So you got pregnant. it had been so suppressed. Yes. Interesting. And so then when I started having those heavy periods after he was born, I never went back on birth control. Mm. And if I would have known I had endometriosis, I probably would have gotten back on the birth control until we decided to try again, but I had no idea. Um, and then so they kind of, yeah, so it was like a year of breeding ground for the endo to just yes. grow, take over. Wow. Yeah. And just flare up. And then they told me that even the IUIs were bad for it because I was taking all of the, all the medications and the Clomid was bad for it. And I had no idea. So all along it was just getting, just like you know, it basically. Yes, definitely. And so then at that point, after the surgery, they were like, you know, a lot of people get pregnant naturally right after the surgery because everything's cleaned out. So we just suggest you like take, you know, four to six months to just try naturally again. So we were like, okay, sounds good. Let's do that. So continued to try naturally for the next, I think it was about six months and nothing was happening. Wasn't getting pregnant. Um, And so then I guess at this point, it's probably late 2018. And we decided that we're going to start looking into adoption because we had talked to the fertility clinic and they had said, you know, even with the surgery, with the quality of your eggs at this point, we think that IVF is still going to be a pretty low, like a pretty low chance that it's going to work for you. And so we were kind of like, we're going to spend all this money and we might still be in the same position that we're in now and adoption felt like more of a sure thing. Um, so far it has not been a sure thing, but I was about to say, and I know that you have different thoughts on that years later, but yeah, I'll let you get into that. Oh my gosh. And I'm sure, and maybe this wasn't the case for your family, but like women with secondary infertility, that age gap. So like the time that goes by, did, was that age gap between child one and child two, like in the back of your mind? Yes. That's like the worst part. Even still today, it's just like so hard because he was one and a half when I got pregnant again. And like my sister and I are about a year and a half apart. And you just like want that so bad for him to have like a little friend to grow up with. And it's like, Oh, it's going to happen. And then it's not. And then every single day feels like an eternity because it's like, here we are all this time is passing. Like he's going to be eight in two weeks. He's going to be eight years old. You know, it just like flies by and but you know, what can you do? Yeah. But it is so hard. Yeah. My mom and aunt are seven years apart and best friends, like the weirdest type of best friends ever. Like they <laughs> literally that. follow each Amanda knows they follow yeah. each other from They're the cutest city. thing ever. They watch my daughter. So anyways, it, it, it can happen. They can, can still be, be best friends. Yes. It can be wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> it can just a different, a different relationship, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So we, at that point we were still living in Charlotte. Um, we were getting ready to move to Greenville, South Carolina. So we were going to be moving out of state and for adoption, you have to have your home study done in the state that you're living in. So it was like a waiting process. We knew we were going to be moving and I wanted to start the process for adoption. Cause you know, you hear all these stories of it taking years. So I'm like, let's get it started. So we did go ahead and sign on with an agency adoption agency, but we had to hold off to get our, get like active because we had to wait until we moved to the new state to get our home study completed. So there were about five to six months of time where we knew we were going to be working with this agency, but we had to be living in the state to get Mm -hmm. the home study completed. So it was late, late 2018 when we finally started our paperwork, got our home study done for adoption. And this is for domestic infant adoption and it was just a whole new world but we were like so excited it was like the whole thing was just felt like this is going to work this is going to be good this is great we were both on board um you know we told all of our friends and family we were so excited um and when we signed on with the agency you know we had to go through all of our 
I hate to call it like our list of wants for a baby because all Mm -hmm. we really wanted was a baby, but your preferences, because there's such a wide variety of situations that you hear about with, with adoptions. And so you have to, you know, say, are you okay with drug exposure? Are you okay with um, any kind of special needs? All of these different things, which are, it's even harder to say no to those things when you want a baby so bad, you know, and um, so that was, yes. I don't know if you guys had to do this too, but in my process, it even goes as far as like the birth mother and birth fathers, like mental health in their family. And that, that was the hardest for me because like you're saying, you want to just say, yes, it's fine. Yes, it's fine. Um, but a lot of adoption now are open adoption. So then you're like, Hey, well, this is a lifelong commitment to potentially deal with like a bipolar birth Mm -hmm. mom or have that kind of go into the child. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's, It's a scary process because you have no control over anything. And like you said, you really want to say yes to all of it because you feel like when your baby comes, it's meant to be your baby and none of the other stuff is going to matter. But especially with us having a son, I felt like there was a lot of not guilt, but, you know, we don't want to take away from the life that he has either. And so it was just very, there are times where we didn't agree on everything. Like I was very much like, I want the baby check. Yes. On all of the boxes. And he was much more pragmatic about like what would actually work for our family. So that was kind of a process that we didn't expect, but finally got to a point where we kind of agreed on everything, started, went active um, with our agency. And we also had to say like what our budget was. And it's outrageous how much adoption costs. It's outrageous. I remember we gave them our budget and I was like, oh, we're going to have like the biggest budget of everyone. And Mm -hmm. then they came back. They're like, "Mm, you might want to up that a little bit. We're like, are you serious? It's so crazy. Oh my God. It's crazy. And that was exactly what happened to us. So we they kind of gave us a range of like, here's where everyone typically is with their budget. And so we were kind of like right in the middle, I feel of what they originally told us. We started out, had a few months, we were getting lots of calls um, about different situations. And then we would be presented with all of the information that they had. And then we would have to either say yes or no. If we said yes, then they would send all of our information and profile book to the adoptive family or the um, birth family. And then they would get to say if they wanted to match with us or not. And so we went through that process for, I would say, four or five months. We had said yes quite a few times. We had had to say no a few times too, but we never matched. And then the agency came back to us and they were like, we really feel like you should up your budget. Um, You know, if you want to see more exposure to more situations. And we were like, gosh, this is like, it's overwhelming. Like It is. And was this pre-COVID? This was pre-COVID. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, We ran into a lot of COVID related issues too, in terms of matching with families. Oh, I bet. I can't even imagine going through that during the COVID, like with this agency specifically, there was just so many little things that didn't leave us feeling great Mm -hmm. with the agency. And I really liked our consultant that we worked with. She was super sweet and was checking in on us a lot, but it was just always felt like we needed to do more like financially or we need to you know be- the agency I used. I was after the call. We can see, did we use the same <laughs> one? We did. I think we <laughs> talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, I was like, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. And so I don't know. I just, I don't know. I, I don't want to talk bad about them at all. I know they've done wonderful things for so many families, but for us, it was just, it just got to be too much. And so our, um, contract with them was for a year. So we got right to our year mark and we were really like, you know, do we want to sign another contract, pay more money to continue working with them, also up our budget and do all of these things. And we were kind of like, we need to, we need to just like rethink this and look into other options. And at this point we had, we had moved to South Carolina. We met a family in our new neighborhood who had worked with a local adoption attorney here in Greenville. Um, And so they didn't go through an agency. They just kind of worked with, with him and they had had a really good experience. Um, Less money was involved and we kind of just wanted to like feel that out. So we went and met with him, had a really good feeling. So we had kind of decided at this point, we're not going to renew our contract with the agency and we're going to take a few months. And then we're probably going to start working with this local adoption attorney. Um, And during that time I was teaching third grade still. And I had a student in my class 
and he was uh, adopted by his grandparents when he was an infant. And so his grandparents had been raising him and his older sister. And then he had two much younger siblings who at the time were um, two and three years old and had recently gone into foster care. Um, and the grandparents were not allowed to even foster them because of their age at that point. Um, the grandparents were like in their 70s. And I guess I didn't know all of these things, but I guess there's rules about, you know, age, even if you are family. Um, and I, I did think, not know that. Yeah. And I think it makes sense. I mean, the grandmother was very much like, I don't think I could take on two yeah. more toddlers at this point. Um, and so she knew that we were kind of in the process of trying to adopt. I talked to her a couple of times and, you know, I talked to my husband. I, I was like, I feel like this is kind of meant to be like, we should maybe look into seeing if we can foster these kids. And so we jumped in on that and that was December of, let's see, 2020, 2020. And, um, we were able to do a kinship foster because we were kind of friends of the family. So we didn't have to get certified for foster care. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so, awesome. so it was super fast, like within two weeks of reaching out to um, the foster care system, they were in our home. Oh Is that God. because you already were home study approved too, or had that lapsed? And this was all just because you were friends of the family. So we still had our home study and we thought that would have been helpful, but um, the foster care system, at least here in South Carolina, doesn't except home studies that are not done through right. their entity. It was considered a private home study, so they didn't accept that. But they just sent someone out for like two hours one day to check out our house and did like a very quick home study. And two days later, we went and picked up the kids. So it was a whirlwind. And it yeah. was right before Christmas. It was three days before Christmas Wow! when we went and picked them up. And Gosh. they were two and three years old adorable boy and a girl. And, and how old was your son at this point? He was six. Okay. He was six. Yeah. And, um, things were really good for a few days. There was definitely like a honeymoon phase. We were all excited. It was Christmas. My family was in town. So everyone was like all hands on. And, um, then we found out, I don't want to share too much of their story. Um, but there was a lot of trauma of course, that they had had in their past. And it ended up being a situation where they really needed like therapeutic foster parents who had been through training, probably best for like a family that didn't have other children. They just needed a whole lot of intensive care to get them to where they needed to be. Um, so that was probably like the hardest thing we've been through so far because we had to say goodbye to them. It was just not a good fit for not only our family, but for them, you know, like we really mm -hmm. felt like we weren't able to give them what they really needed. And so we had to say goodbye. Um, and they were moved into another foster home, which was really sad because it's just, you know, it's not their fault, you know, and they're just such little kids, but. And going through the adoption process myself, you know, my husband and I looked into foster care and the story that you just described that happens a lot where the, the, like, like you said, it's not, it was for their benefit. It wasn't like, oh, our family couldn't, you know, it wasn't the best fit for you, but it wasn't the best fit for them either. And I think that happens a lot with fostering. It does. And it's so, it's like, you feel like they've already had so many failures in their life and then you're just adding to it, you know? And that was like just the hardest thing ever. But we had so many nights where we would both get in the bed and just be so overwhelmed. Like we can't do this. Like we're not giving them what they need. And we had a hard time with the foster care system. We asked for support, support, please help us. These kids need counseling. These kids need, and we just, there was nothing. There was no, wow. no one would respond to us for days and it was just overwhelming. And so we had to say goodbye to them and move on from that situation. But we did continue to check on them and they were just recently two months ago adopted by a family. So I was so oh, happy to hear that. That's hey. wonderful. Yeah. And got to stay together. So that's, that's great news. So all of that worked out and you just have to say, even those few weeks that they were with us, they were here for about six weeks, at least hopefully we did something good for them in those six yeah, weeks, you know? Did. Yeah. So at that point, you know, another door was closed. It felt like, 
And we decided, okay, so now we're going to go back to the attorney we had met with and we're going to sign on with him and start this adoption process up. Um, At that, that point, was, were you like, we're never fostering again and you just want to only do adoption or were you still open to both? We were like, we're never going to foster again, for yeah. sure. It was how we felt. And I think a lot of it was just being overwhelmed, you know, and it was just like, I don't want to say anger, but there were a lot of things that just weren't told to us. And I don't know if it's because they just really didn't know the scope of what they had been through, or if it was like, we're just not going to share these things and hopefully it'll be okay. Um, it's hard to say, but it just felt like there wasn't a whole lot of honest conversation going on with that process. And so, um, we were, we were definitely like, we want a baby, you know, we really want to. Yeah. Baby. And not to go off to, on too much of a tangent, but you know, of course, any, any, I feel like any adoptive parent also considers fostering, but like someone coming from quote unquote infertility or loss, like a lot of people say like foster to adopt, which is actually the polar opposite of what the foster system is built around. It's, it's built for reunification of the family. So like coming from infertility from your perspective and coming from recurrent loss from my perspective, it's so difficult to not get your hopes up that this will be a forever family. And and I'm sure the system just doesn't, they just aren't as involved as per se in an adoption agency, which they too aren't the best. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's definitely, you know, we went into it knowing we wanted to adopt. That was our goal, of course. And so with that situation, we knew there was a good possibility that they were going to be um, up for adoption. So we went into it with an open mind, but it's so hard to go into the foster care system wanting to grow your family, but knowing that's, that's not the goal of the foster care system at all. And so that is hard. Also, I can't imagine getting a little baby and, and not having the option to, to keep the baby. So yeah, that's really hard. Um, and so then, then you we guys meet the lawyer. Yes. Then we go back to meet with him again, decide to sign on with him. That was March of 2021 because yeah coming up this March will be two years that we've been working with him um and kind of did the same thing that we had done with the agency went through our preferences budget all of those types of things um it's a much smaller I don't even remember when we signed on with the first agency how many families they worked with typically at one time, but I don't think it was an honest answer that we were given because <laughs> yep. I think they had said a number somewhere around 30 to 40 families at a time. But then there were times where I know there were more than that presenting to one situation at a time. Yep. So we wanted to work with some something smaller because I feel like that gives you a better chance of matching with a birth family because there's not I can't imagine as a birth mom getting 60 profiles to look through and choose from. That's just crazy. And Kristen, did you find out or did you feel that like, like to your point, you know, 60 profiles to a birth mother, what I feel like I kind of found out was the agency was almost prioritizing which books were being reviewed first. So like you might've presented to a birth mother, but you were like book number 54 and no, no birth mom's going to look at, I mean, maybe they will, but they're going to probably pick out of that top 10. Um, and what we found out through the process was it was very manipulated. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. And I was, I remember my husband being like, there's no way that all of these ones we've said yes to have even seen our profile book. There's just no way. And so every time you, it makes you feel like a failure as a family, you're like, what's wrong with us? Why are yeah, they picking yeah. us? Yeah. Yeah. I remember being like a crazy person, like getting on their Instagram and like trying to see the other families and like, what do they look like? I want to see their profile. <laughs> I <do> too. <laughs> and they tell you, you know, like, don't worry about any of that. The birth mom that chooses you is going to choose you for like the craziest reason, but like, you can't help it. You want to compare yourself. You're like, we're here you know, every time. Yeah. So that was really hard. So this attorney, they really do only work with less than 20 families at a time. And it's mostly just local families here in like the Greenville area. Um, and so we were able to keep using our same profile book that we had, but it was the same type of process. Um, they would get a call from a birth mom. Then they would see if it matched our criteria for what we were kind of looking for. And then we would send our profile and they told us each time exactly how many families they were sending. Um, 
off to the birth mom to review. So most of the time it was, sometimes they would just send hours and then the birth mom would either say yes, or I would like to see more. So they would start with one a lot, just one, unless they requested more. Um, and so we were getting a lot more activity, I guess you could say, like we were hearing a lot more situations and cases. I think by this point we had been presented with like 50 something cases. Wow. wow. And, yeah. And we had probably said yes to, I have a little like journal that I've kept with all of our adoption stuff. Like I've written down every situation we've heard about and how it turned out and all of that. Um, right now we're on 75 cases. Um, and we've probably said yes to like 60 to 70% of those. Um, and so that's kind of how it went for a couple of months. We would hear about something. A lot of times we would say, yes, the birth mom would, would technically choose us. And then she would change her mind before we ever really got any farther into the process that happened two or three times. Um, when you say change her mind, you mean like in terms of family or in terms of choosing to parent? choosing to parent. So, um, it was like very quick trying to remember the first one that we said yes to. She also said, yes, they called us. They were like, you've matched. Um, you know, we're gonna wait a couple of days and then give you her information and you guys can start texting, getting to know each other. And before that even happened, they called us back and they were like, she's not responding anymore. We think she's probably decided to parent, mm-hmm. um, which is like a roller coaster, oh, but Luckily, those situations, there's not a lot of financial stuff involved because it is so quick. So we were thankful for that. And then by May, so March to May, May was when we got our first call that we had actually matched with a birth mom. Um, She was in uh, Georgia and we matched with her and we were so excited. We were matched for a couple of months. We would text each other, got to know each other pretty well, just texting Um, and then we went down to meet her in June and we had lunch with her and she was, she had two kids that she was raising. So we got to meet them. Um, she was super sweet. We felt really good about everything. She gave us her ultrasound pictures. We found out the baby was a girl and we came home, told our son that he was going to have a little sister. My friends threw me a shower. I wallpapered a pink nursery. Like I just went all out. Um, And I'm here to tell everyone, please do not do that. (laughs) And um, we were matched with her up until, so she was due in August. And around the end of July, she kind of, she didn't stop responding to me, but her responses were few and far between. So she would respond and then I wouldn't hear back from her for days Um, and the agency was kind of like, or my attorney was like, you know, this happens sometimes, like, don't freak out. It's okay. We think it's going to be fine. She's been, you know, very up in front with how she's feeling with everything. A lot of times when they get close to the due date, they just want some time to themselves. So days went by, didn't hear from her for like a week and a half. And that was like a very long time because we had been communicating every few days. And um, she had previously placed a baby actually with a different family a year and a half before that. And that family lived in Charleston. So we got to meet them and um, we were gonna be able to have the siblings be little friends and know each other. And that was exciting. And so she, that the mom of the last adopted baby was friends with the birth mom on Facebook. And after a few days of not hearing from her, the due date came and went. We didn't hear anything. She had the baby and she had posted pictures on her Facebook of the baby and we still hadn't heard anything. And so we were just thinking she hasn't had the baby yet. She's going to call us when she goes into labor. And so um, the family of her other child that lived in Charleston, that mom called me and she was like, "I, I really hate to tell you this, but I think she had the baby she's posted a baby on Facebook and I'm pretty sure it's the baby. So we found out a couple of days later that she did have the baby. She was planning to keep her and she just, I guess, didn't know how to tell us that. Oh Um, my gosh, Kristen. Yeah. And so that was like super heartbreaking. And, you know, we had gone all those months thinking this baby was going to be ours and um, she kept her. So 
at that point we were devastated and it was just shocking. I mean, you know, when you go into adoption, that that's like always a possibility and a very likely possibility is what we've come to find out. But is the there's fail- just, yeah, I have, I'm like so speechless. That is, oh, I'm so sorry. I know. I'm so right. sorry. Right. Um, yeah. The failed adoption rate when, when the parent chooses a place, isn't it like 24% or is it higher than that? I think it's higher. So I think it's really dependent on agency. So I've heard numbers all over the place, but when you look online, it's 40%, 40%. which is really high. And I, like, if I were in your shoes, I feel like the fact that she had placed a child for adoption previously, it would almost have felt like, okay, this is a birth mother that like has that quote unquote has it in her. Like she's, that is something that she's gone through. She's done it. She's considering it again. So it was a good situation. So I would have felt really secure. Yeah. Yeah. And that was exactly what we felt. We were like, wow, she knows what this process is like. She's been able to do it before. She, she feels like this is the best choice for her and the baby. And so we really felt good about it. And we, I mean, we went and met her, we know, like we knew she was a real person. We saw her. And so it was just, it was crazy. It was like all good until it wasn't, you know, and then it was just like done. And so that was super hard. And, um, we probably should not have, I mean, I don't, maybe people had told me not to like (laughs) celebrate as much as we did before. And I just didn't listen to it, but now excited and so so I mean yeah Yeah, we were and we had had it we had had a son and so this was a little girl and I was like so excited to do all the girly stuff and like just went overboard and looking back on it now I'm like gosh we should not we just should not have done that we should have kept everything neutral and stayed calm but I know but it's so that's hard especially like you're saying it was like end of July by the time it kind of went south yep Yeah, it was a long process. So we moved on from that situation. We took probably a month or so off just to recoup and get ready to start up again. Yeah, process everything. Um, And so we went back into the, what they call, we went on the rematch list. I was going to ask you just quickly, if we could touch on the financial aspect of that. So had you guys invested financially into that family? Yes. So as soon as we had matched with her, um, we started paying for all of her living expenses. So everything from her rent to her groceries, clothing, Um, She didn't have a car, but a lot of times you do pay car payments, gas money. Um, So we would pay for Ubers and things like that for her transportation, any, pretty much anything for living expenses we covered. And how does that work? So like now that it didn't. So I, that's why I wanted to touch on it. So I, I'm like over here, just like shaking my head and Amanda's like, what? I'm definitely not like, I don't, I'm not knowledgeable about like this side of adoption at all. So like I had, I mean, I knew you had to like pay for expenses and stuff, but I didn't realize like. Yeah. You pay for literally like almost an itemized day to day for them, meals, transportation, all that stuff. And this is the craziest thing that I learned through the process is you don't get it back. That's what I was going to ask. I'm like, but it, she decided. But because, and I can like Kristen speak on it too. I'm just like, wait, what? (laughs) It's really interesting. And it does make sense. I think when you go through the process, it's like, if you were to say, if that, if that birth mother was to give birth and then like Kristen or I were to say, well, then we need our 20,000, $30,000 back. Some mothers may be financially unable to do that. And so then they just get they would place their child. So it's kind of like this ethical boundary and you do sign contracts up front knowing it's a risk, but like, you don't think that's going to happen. Okay. Yeah. And this might sound really bad, but would not, wouldn't people like take advantage of the system then all the time, just yes. so that people can pay for their expenses and then be, yes. not have any intention of ever giving a baby up. That yes. might just be like a, that. Okay. So that's like a real thing. It definitely happens. And so they, they actually think that with this specific situation that that is what happened. They don't think that she necessarily went into it knowing a hundred percent that this was her plan all along because she had placed a baby before. Yeah. But because she had placed a baby before she knew that everything was going to be covered. And, you know, I like to think the best in everyone, you know, and it's like, she did have a very rough life and a very hard living situation. And she had two kids at home that she was trying her best to support. And I don't, 
I obviously do not know what her intentions were. She's the only one that knows that. But at the end, when she did not tell us that she had had the baby, she had gotten to the very end of July, which means August started. So we paid another month of living expenses and the baby had already been born. And so there was definitely a month we know for sure that we were scammed because it was... The baby was due, um, I think it was the 14th of August. She ended up, was what we were told. She ended up having the baby the very end of July. And so there was no communication at that point. So when August rolled around, of course, we paid everything again for that month thinking baby hasn't been born yet. We're still supporting her. And it turns out she had, she was holding the baby at home already. And so we know for sure that happened the last month. Oh, wow. So not only failed adoption, but now this whole, mani- I mean, I, I, okay, yeah. I'll give it back to you. So you're, you keep going. We oh do gosh, keep this going. Is, this is less than a year ago, right? This is like six, seven months ago, or are we in 2021? Nope. This is 2021. 2021. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, my husband at that point was mad. Like he was just mad and I was mad too, but I was just more sad, you know, like for me, it was, he's a very like, you know, spreadsheets for budgets and all of that kind of stuff. And for me, it's like, I just want the baby. Like, what do we have to do to get the baby? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we had to kind of reevaluate where we were, because like you said, a lot of the money that had been spent was just gone. And fortunately, like our attorney, so a lot of we also in the adoption process, you pay for the birth mother's um, attorney as well. And so her attorney had charged for a lot of hours that they had worked on her case as well. So a lot of money was spent to her attorney, our attorney. And I, can't imagine, I can't be imagining so angry at somebody and then having to pay their I bills. I feel like still pay. Yeah. 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 It's hard. And like you said, you, you know, you know, that's a risk going into it. You just hope that it's not going to happen to you. And then it does. And so, um, we kind of had to reevaluate where we were financially and moving forward. So some of the money that we had spent did roll over. So she connected with an agency who then reached out to our attorney. So there was an agency fee involved. That agency luckily rolls over the full amount to your next adoption. So the money we had spent on the agency, which was a lot, was not lost. We were able to roll that into a future situation. So really the only money we lost were the birth mother living expenses and then attorney fees that we had paid. Um, and I don't want to say the only money because it was a lot of money, but and, yeah. And it's good and bad that it rolls over, right? Because now you're pigeonholed into all, not only working with this agency, but if you want to utilize that money, you're going to now just work with this specific agency. Yes. Yeah. So it's only with that agency. Um, And so they kind of, if you decide not to work with them anymore, you can get half of your money back, um, the other half they keep. So our specific attorney, he mostly works with just that one agency, um, unless birth mothers come directly to him. And so since we've been working with him, there's only been, I think, two situations where a birth mother came directly to him. So in that situation, we could have gotten half of our money back, but all of the other cases have been through that agency, luckily, yeah, because I know it was different when we were working with the previous agency. If you got in this situation, then you were stuck with just that one, um, agency. So anyways, we move on. Um, and a few months go by. So on the rematch list, they kind of narrow you down a little bit to situations that they like to say are less risky, meaning the birth mother is closer to her due date or, there's just less financial risk in the situation. Um, and so we were at the top of that list waiting for a call, but it meant there would be less of those situations because they try to match you with a birth mom who's two months or less away from her due date so that the living expenses don't add up to so much. Um, so we waited a while and we did not, we had a couple of other matches kind of like previously that were not financially risky they were very fast turnaround like a couple of what they call stork drops which Mm -hmm. is where the baby is born already you get a call we would say yes but before we could pack our bags or hear back they would call and say the mom has left the hospital she decided to keep the baby um this is excruciating I literally can't imagine the like emotional roller coaster that it is 
It is. It's crazy. And I honestly can't even remember all the situations, but there's been quite a few like that where we like one, we got a call in the middle of the night. It was like one 30 and they're like, there's a baby girl born in Pennsylvania. Do you guys want to say yes? If you want to say yes, you should start packing your bags. So we like, are like, yes, the baby's here. Like let's pack these bags. And so, I mean, by eight o'clock in the morning, they had called back and said, she's changed her mind. She's going to keep the baby. I think this is more turmoil than I've really heard in a lot of people that have gone through. I mean, this is, this is adoption. This is adoption. Exactly. And I'm so happy you're sharing all of this because it absolutely is. And I know you said it earlier where you were like, well, IVF isn't a sure thing and adoption is, and now you've lived to tell the tale. Yeah. Nothing is a sure thing, I guess. (laughs) And I kind of hate sharing all of it because it is like just so down. All of it is just... But it's the reality of it. And you don't want people to go through it thinking like, okay, we're 100% going to get a baby. It's going to be so quick and easy. Yeah. This is like. I think this is, yeah, your story. So yeah, sorry, Amanda. Your story so far has been unbelievably informative because I think a lot of people come on here and I know you're not finished, but I I think a lot of people come on here and they're like, yeah, we're going to adopt. And we did. And we were matched four weeks later and it was great. great. Those are the stories I heard going into adoption. And Mm -hmm. I was super naive and you and I use the same agency at the beginning and they do all these false promises because I could tell like 10 or 12 other women that I've spoken to use that agency and it did not happen for them. Yeah. And like, you're just like, yeah, it's going to happen. It happens for everybody. So I think this is really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, I think they had told us like, you know, probably like an average of a six month wait and you'll have a baby. And of course that's not a hundred percent, but you get that in your head and you're like, well, definitely in a year, we're going to have a baby, you know, and it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's overwhelming. So let's see a long time went by where we had a few of those short little matches. Nothing was working out. We went a few months without hearing anything at all. No situations were presented to us throughout the summer of this past summer. And we were just trying to stay hopeful. And, um, We got a call for, um, let's see, when was it? October, this October, this past October. And um, a similar situation to the one where we had the disruption, Um, a very young birth mom. She was having her second baby. She was um, feeling like she wasn't in a position to keep the baby. Um, So we said yes to this one, got a call back later that night that she had picked us and we were matched again. Um, a couple of days later, we started texting with her, got to know her. Um, she was in Texas, so we did not meet her before the baby was born, but, um, we had, we built like a really good relationship. She was Hispanic and did not speak English. So we would text through Google translate, um, which was interesting. So I feel like that was a little bit of a barrier to get to know each other, but, um, it worked out. Okay. She was super sweet. We chatted every couple of days. Um, She was very open with me about why she was choosing to place her baby and how she felt about the whole situation. Um, And so everything was going great. And we were matched with her from October and the baby was due January, this January that we're still in right now. So um, she called me, I was at school January 4th and said, I'm in labor, I'm having contractions, you need to get to Texas. So I rush home, we pack our bags, my mom comes to town to stay with our son, and we drive 14 hours to Houston, Texas, and the whole way there, we're texting with her, she's kind of updating me, she, you know, is telling me her contractions are getting stronger, she wanted to wait it out, though, before she went to the hospital, Um, so we're driving through the night, 14 hours, She texted me again around 10 o'clock in the morning and said she was at the hospital and they were going to do a C-section. And so the baby would be born within the next hour. And so we told her, well, we're going to be there as soon as we can. We'll be there around one o'clock in the afternoon. Um, She asked us to bring her some donuts. So we stopped and got her some donuts on the way to the hospital. Everything's going great. We're so excited. We're, you know, updating our family, our friends, everyone. We're like, this is happening. We get to Houston, get to the hospital and go to the nurse's station. They had our adoption plan. Our attorney had reached out to them so they knew who we were and that, you know, she had decided to place her baby. Obviously nothing is permanent until she signs her rights away. Um, 
but they knew who we were. So we get there. They're all very nice to us. They're like, just wait out here in the waiting room. Um, one of the nurses will come back and get you in just a little bit. So we sit there and we sit there. Two hours go by, three hours go by. We're sitting in the waiting room and the nurse comes out and she has this man with her and he was the um, social worker that worked at the hospital. And they were like, can we get you guys to come over in this room with us? And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Like you just, I just had a feeling like this isn't good. And so they sit us down and they tell us that she's having second thoughts and that the baby's here, he's healthy, everyone's doing great, but that she's just having second thoughts. She didn't think it was going to be this hard and she's just not ready for us to come back and that we should just leave the hospital and wait to hear something. So of course I'm like devastated, like not expecting this at all. And we leave the hospital, go to the hotel room, um, check in for the night. We don't hear anything all night long from her. I text her just, you know, thinking about you. We know this is hard. Like, you know, please let us know if you need anything. We're here. We really hope we get a chance to meet you. And um, she doesn't respond. So the next morning we wake up and she finally responds. She sends me a text message and she's like, I'm sorry, this has been really hard for me. I never thought it was going to be this hard, Um, but I still want to meet you guys so you can come to the hospital. So we're like, okay, maybe this is, maybe she's just having a hard time, which is expected. I can't imagine having a baby and having to give it away. So we get in the car, we drive to the hospital, we spend all day in the hospital room with her and the baby like seven hours in the hospital room. We were feeding the baby, changing the diapers. She's just there with us and she doesn't hold the baby at all while we're in the room. We did everything. And so we had a really good feeling. We're like, you know, she's, you know, accepting this and just needs a little more time. Um, And so visiting hours were over. The nurses at the hospital were amazing with us and they were like typically we would give you guys a room but we just don't have any space tonight so you'll have to go back to the hotel room but tomorrow if we have space you guys can stay here with the baby and um so everything's good you know at this point she still is saying she's having a hard time but she's not saying this is this month this is this month yeah this was january 5th he was born on january 5th so we just got back from texas a couple weeks ago um So we leave the hospital that night and we're like excited at this point. Like we're back to feeling pretty positive about everything because she was so, you know, I mean, she let us stay in the room with her all day long and hold the baby and be there. And so the next morning we had told her we'll be back in the morning, like first thing. So we get back to the hospital in the morning. First thing we're there for a few hours, the social worker for the hospital comes back in and She's like, I'm going to talk to her for a little bit. So I need you guys to kind of step out. So we step out, they come back and get us. And they're like, she's still really having just a super hard time. She's not sure what she wants to do. And she wants a little bit of time alone with the baby. And so in Texas, I don't mean to cut you off, but in Texas, what is the, like, how many days or how many hours do they have in order to like decide? So there are certain states where you can use, um, the law that is in the adoptive families state. So in Texas, they could use South Carolina law. And she had already signed a paper saying that she would do that because South Carolina, you can sign really anytime after 24 hours. And once you sign, there is no, you can't change your mind. Yeah. Um, and so she had agreed to do that. Our attorney said that they would have her sign it at 48 hours. They like to wait 48 hours just because they know medication, all that kind of stuff. It's just better to wait 48 hours. So we were under the impression that at 48 hours, her attorney would be there and she would be signing. Um, and at that point she, she couldn't change her mind. And so she knew all of that. Um, and we go back to the hospital, give her some space. She asked for time with the baby. And she says that she's going to make a decision that day. She wants a few hours alone. She's going to make her final decision. So we leave the hospital We just wait around. We don't hear anything the rest of that day. And one of the nurses had given me her her, um, personal cell phone number so that I could text her, which was so nice. And 
she was kind of texting me, you know, the social workers here talking to her. She hasn't decided yet. We'll let you know when we hear anything. Um, and then her last text message to me was, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you anything else. Um, not going to be able to communicate with you anymore. And so at that point, we kind of had the feeling that she had told them she was going to keep the baby because they had stopped communicating with us. Um, and so that was it. She was discharged with the baby and left the hospital with him. And so we got in the car and drove back home 14 right. hours. And how are you a functioning human being right now? Honestly, <laughs> it's, it's a lot. It's a lot, but I don't know, just trying to stay somewhat oh. positive. I mean, with her, it was a little different than the last one. There, For me, there wasn't any anger at all. And I don't know if it was just because we were there with her and I knew the hard time that she was going through. And I really feel like she did not plan for that to happen. Um, and so I think she, you know, she didn't want to hold the baby. She had a C-section. She didn't want to hold him after he was born. And I don't want to say they forced her, but they put the baby on her. And she told me like, it was so hard to see him and hold him and be with him. Um, and so I can't, I mean, I can't imagine how she felt, you know, and sitting there with her, it's just, you know, you can't, I can't have any anger towards her because she, I think she was just doing what she felt like was best and it is her baby, you know? So here we are, that's the end of everything for now. I mean, and we're just, trying to figure out where we go from here because, you know, obviously there were a lot of, there was a lot of financial loss with this one again. And um, my son's yeah. about to be eight years yeah, old. The emotional toll. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously just speechless. I mean, you're, <laughs> and I, I hate when people say like, you're an incredible person and you're super strong. Cause I know you probably don't feel that way. And you're probably like, no, I'm not strong at all. These are just situations that keep happening to me. And I just keep going and I just like, I applaud you for continuing to, to work, to grow your family. I mean, you're, this story is probably the most shocking story I've ever heard. <laughs> I, both of our jaws are like, oh, like dropped truly. Oh my gosh. I'm I so hopeful for your family. And you said your son is, will be eight this year. Yeah. He'll be eight in two weeks. So, mm. you know, at some point my husband's like, at what point do we say it's just not meant to be? And for me, it's like, Never. Like I, I never mean, say I know, that. No, no. I think you, I am so hopeful for you guys. So you're such, I can just tell, like you want to grow your family and you are willing to do that. And like coming from your current loss for me, it was just jump, keep jumping in, keep jumping in. And I see that in you of you're just like, what's next? What can I do next? And even yeah. when you like wrote to the show and you're like, this is our story. And at the end, you're like, okay, back to the drawing board. And we're going to figure out what's next. Like, I had no idea you were going through all of this. Um, you're amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks. I don't feel strong, but you know, like you said, it's just like things keep happening and what do you do? You have to keep moving forward. And I don't feel like giving up is the answer at this point. And, you know, at some point we will have to, I mean, I'm 36 years old. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, a super old mom, but I feel like 36 is not too old at this it's point. It's not at all. You are still very old. <laughs> yeah. So I hope, I, oh, go ahead. I hope this story helps someone. I know it's not like a happy ending, but there's not an ending yet. So maybe it will be eventually. I finger crossed hope this story helps you. I hope that we can put this out and maybe some, some people can, you know, be introduced to you and your family and your story. I, are you willing to share? I don't know if you share, you don't really share any of this on your Instagram, right? No. I don't. I've been like, my husband was shocked when I told him I was going to do this. Cause I've, we've kept it all really private. Like we, we haven't announced anything on social media. I mean, I don't, I have Instagram. I don't really use anything else social media wise and it's private, but I'm happy to share. I just, I don't put much of it on social media. Um, it's all very delicate. So are you comfortable if we share that or would you prefer like if people reach out to us, we share it that way? I can share it. It's fine. Yeah. I don't mind at all. It's private. So if anyone wants to reach out, I'm happy to share, you know, our experience if it helps anyone. So, um, on Instagram, I'm Kiki, K-I-K-I -K -K -I Goodman. That's my nickname with my little siblings. So, um, 
you can find me there and I'm happy to share anything if someone wants to reach out. I think this will definitely, definitely help our listeners. And um, if you wouldn't mind, I personally would love to just be updated with what you guys decide to do next. If Amanda and I, you know, I feel like we have a lot of connections in the community. If we can connect you to anybody, um, however that, whatever is next in your your journey, be it adoption, if you guys go back to IVF or surrogacy or any of that out there, um, I would love to, to try to play a role in your story too. Yeah, that would be amazing. I would definitely keep you guys updated and I appreciate it so much. It's been awesome talking to you guys. It's always helpful to, to get it all out and share it, you know? Yeah. You are just so, so strong to come off such a fresh, fresh wound and fresh experience to share this. Um, I'm really, really hopeful and excited for your family moving forward. And I'm really hope excited to share this with listeners. Cause I could think of like 10 people that are going to benefit from your story. Good. I'm so glad to hear it. Thanks guys.